Welcome to the Fierce Authenticity Podcast, where we talk all things life, love, and leadership as you are on your path towards liberation. I'm your hostess, Sharani M. Pathak, and I am excited for us to dive right in. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited that you're here with me again as we are preparing to dive into part two of our conversation with my dear friend, Robin Morning, who you met in episode 10.0, where she was talking about liberation and emancipation. And in today's conversation, we are focused on more on burnout and overwhelm. It's another really long episode. And one of the highlights that I want to bring is that Robin blew my mind with this idea that maybe it's not exactly burnout that we're experiencing. Maybe it's capitalism fatigue. And I'm not going to say more about that because I encourage you to listen in on what Robin has to say and when she is sharing her thoughts about it. Before we dig into the episode itself, I wanted to remind you that we now have an official date for our gathering in mid-September, so mark your calendars. September 17th, 2020, we will be gathering in community for free. So if you're looking to get connected with community, which again is something that is emphasized over and over in this podcast and in my conversations with Robin, that if you are looking for community and coming together with like-minded individuals in a place to really experiencing healing and support as we are in these revolutionary and liberatory times, then be sure to click the link in my bio to RSVP for our completely complimentary gathering on September 17th, 2020. And now without further ado, here is my conversation with Robin. Enjoy. Robin, thank you so much for joining me back on the podcast for take two. <laughs> thank you so much, Sharani. I'm really glad to be back. I love having these deep, soulful, meaningful conversations with you and being able to have a conversation again with you and your audience is really exciting and it's such an honor. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm just really excited that you said yes to coming back, especially right now, because, you know, the episode that comes right before our episode today is about how we exploit ourselves, like how we learned about exploitation through colonization, how we exploit the most valuable resource, the resource of ourselves. This is the concept I had learned from Andrea Renee in her um, Rise Up program when I was listening into some of her classes, and it was so powerful. So when you and I had this time scheduled again today, I knew that this was going to be the perfect flow for us because... What my experience has been when I reflect on the idea of exploiting ourselves is my hustle to achieve and to do contributes to the way that I exploit myself and the ways that I run myself into the ground, the ways that I just lose connection with myself, the way that I abandon myself, and the way that that hustle leads to the overwhelm, which leads to the burnout. And I'm really curious to hear from you 
about outrunning burnout, because that was a phrase that you shared with me, like maybe a year ago at the time of this recording. And it was so powerful. And it landed like, oh, my gosh, like, I understand this idea that you're you're talking about, because as an achiever, a hustler, a doer, I was so used to just go, go, go. And then I would crash. Yeah. So Robin, share your thoughts. Yeah, outrunning burnout. That was something that it was an, a realization that I had that was happening that I was doing for a long time. And I had this realization in a session with one of my healers and it was like, oh my gosh, I have been outrunning burnout. I've been outrunning it for years, probably since 2010. So that's 10 years that I feel I had been outrunning it. And when I say outrunning, I mean, I knew it was there. And that if I didn't do something, it would catch up to me. And what I didn't know is that (laughs) I was outrunning burnout by doing more, more of different things. And really what was happening was I was trying to outrun burnout from like, really have like adult life, like is, (laughs) you know, being an adult, there's a lot of pressure and responsibility. And there was no one specific thing that was causing it, right? It was just a, a culmination of a bunch of things. I had a really intense undergrad, um, college program, you know, that I was in for six years, learning really intense things like microbiology and all kinds of physics and earth science, like just all the science. I mean, I love that. So it was really, I mean, that's why it took six years because I I didn't want to stop. But by the end, and I I ended that in 2010, I graduated in 2010. How old was I? It was 10 years ago. I was, so I was 29, 39 now. So yeah, it was just a lot. It was a lot. And I worked for an employer the company was great, but the the people that I worked with on my team and well, the people, I think my manager and my boss, there was a lot of shady stuff happening and I had to have a lot of boundaries and it took so much energy for me to be the only one respecting my boundaries and having to constantly enforce those boundaries with a lot of force, you know, um, because they would try management would try so hard. So I think, you know, those were the things that were leading to the initial burnout. But I then what I was doing was, I noticed I was overachieving everything I did to take care of myself. (laughs) Right. I'm overachieving in therapy I'm overachieving (laughs) in like all the self care things like I just you know, I can't just do one little thing at a time. Like I got to throw everything in at once. Right. And that, and so that's what I mean by I was outrunning it by just continuing to do more and more and more. Mm. And there was a lot that I unpacked during that time last fall, last, well, it starts in November, I think last November, really starting to unpack really what was going on for me during that burnout. You know, I could no longer, I didn't outrun it anymore. It caught up to me and <laughs> And I think it hit really hard because it was, it was rooted in more than one thing. It wasn't just related to a job or it wasn't just related to, you know, one domain of my life. It was, it was the way I showed up to my life and outside or along with systemic 
con, you know, um, contributing factors and things like that. So I think that's why it hits so hard. I mean, I couldn't even, I couldn't even sit my desk to even consider doing work. You know, I couldn't even sit at my desk for like a month, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I remember our conversations during that time and you were talking about like just doing art and laying on the floor. <laughs> like That was how you were healing through it when it caught up to you. And thank you so much for um, defining for you what that outrunning burnout means. And I really appreciate how you're saying that by when you say outrunning it, it's because like on a conscious level, you knew it was there. And yet as a way to avoid it, you kept just piling more and more and more on. And that eventually anything we try to outrun like usually catches up to us. And when it catches up, it catches up hard so hard. And I definitely have been through very similar periods where, you know, one of my patterns has been go, 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 go. And then I totally crash as well. And then for like a couple months, it's hard for me to do any work. Like I just have shown up and done the bare minimum, which is hold space for my clients. Like that's all that I could do. So I, I know and understand that feeling on some level. And you said something that I felt was really important when you were talking about that job that you had and you were talking about like you were the only one enforcing your own boundaries. Like you were the only one who was willing to honor and respect them. And boundaries is an important conversation, I think, at any time of day. And tell us more about for you, what it looks like when you are enforcing your own boundaries or when you are honoring and upholding your own boundaries and how that supports you? I think that honoring my boundaries, it feels really, it's necessary. It is part of my own liberation and my own relation, you know, really being in right relationship with myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I talked last time about healing, you know, parts of myself and working through some of the you know, self abandonment stuff of kind of relegating my black self to a, a dungeon inside, you know, and so now at this point, boundaries to me is not just about other people and my relationships to other people and systems and environments. They also pertain to boundaries within myself. And so when I'm honoring my boundaries, what I'm really doing is showing my devotion to myself and the relationship. So when I started to go through another layer of really deep inner, inner healing. A couple of years ago, I had been working with a lot of clients over the years who, who were in a really long, intense, and beautiful healing process from all kinds of different traumas. Mm -hmm. Most of them were really intense childhood traumas. And so as adults, you know, they're healing all kinds of patterns. And I noticed that when I saw them realize that healing the abandonment that they had experienced from them, themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because when we're in trauma, our, our brains and our bodies 
and our spirits know how to survive, right? And they'll just do it. And sometimes that means dissociation. So kind of, you know, for your listeners who don't know what that means, that means, you know, a part of our psyche kind of tunes out, you know, dissociation's on a continuum. So it's really hard to like just say it's this or it's that, right? So dissociation can be kind of a numbing of feelings, disconnection from reality, maybe you're daydreaming a lot. Um, And it can also mean that a whole part of your personality or your state of mind is kind of like on lockdown somewhere, right? So the part of you that maybe experienced a really hard trauma, you know, it's not really what everyone gets. It's not really front facing. It's more kind of in the back, you know, near subconscious or your unconscious and doesn't really get a lot of TLC or, or anything like that. So, and that's a very normal, healthy thing that our brains and bodies do to survive trauma in those moments. We no longer need those survival skills when we're not in those traumatic times anymore. And so it takes a while for us to develop the self-trust to say, okay, I trust myself enough to no longer engage in dissociation or to heal the parts of me that still feel really in need of dissociating. And sometimes it's just not a choice, right? We've got to unlearn. We've got to relearn how to engage with ourselves. And so during that process, there was a lot of work around healing self-abandonment patterns that were protective and we needed them at the time, and we no longer need them now. So how do we break out of them? If we were in relationship with ourselves in that way for so long, you know, five, 10, 15, 40 years, how, you know, how do we begin to undo that? What are kind of the antidotes, right? What's the opposite of abandoning yourself, right? And so over the years, I just sat with clients and watched and listened. And I got some information, you know, that I think for right now, what I think the antidotes to self-abandonment are self-holding, self-inclusivity, and self-devotion. Those are three broad categories, and there's only three, and they're what makes sense to me, and they may not be, be what makes sense to everybody else. But so when I say that my boundaries honoring my boundaries and understanding boundaries for what they really are and what they mean and how they function. It's a way of showing myself devotion, right? Mm -hmm. I am devoted to this relationship with myself. And that means that I need to adjust how much time and energy and space I'm giving to certain things. How much time, energy and space am I giving really to my well-being Um, to engaging in relationships that truly honor me, that put me, you know, putting myself in environments that are good and meaningful and things like that. So kind of a long way of getting to the point around, you know, boundaries for me are all about maintaining right relationship with myself and making new pathways of choosing myself and being in that right relationship with myself and no longer prioritizing or running to out of default, you know, abandonment, abandoning myself, you know, because that is, that is the ultimate, right? When we abandon ourselves, Mm -hmm. that creates such a wound and the healing Mm -hmm. that comes, like it is indescribable. Nothing can do that. No other person can bring that kind of medicine. It's all, 
the work that we do. And we have people supporting us through that, right? You know, healers and loved ones surrounding us as we do that and encouraging us and affirming our journey in reconnecting and staying with ourselves. But yeah, it's, that was the most powerful turning point in every single client's journey that I worked with is when they realized, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, I have this wound from, you know, a parent or a caregiver or someone else, but what really is healing to me is I don't have to abandon myself anymore. I can choose and I'm ready, right? I'm, I'm ready. I feel as though I have the ability to do it now because the big kind of trauma symptoms or whatever, you know, aren't constantly at my door, constantly ruling my day. I'm able to reconnect with myself. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how, what, what, honoring my boundaries looks like. And it's really easy to talk about. And it's really easy to build a whole ideology around it. And it's a whole other thing to live it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just be real about that. Because I don't live in a vacuum. You know, I live in this society where most of what I value, and what I find ethical, and liberating is not reflected back to me. You know, and it's not support. It's not what's modeled. So it's really hard to prioritize that, you know, to have a lived experience that feels in alignment, Mm -hmm. you know, and not feel constantly like I'm walking uphill, you know, like, why can't this society just support our well being? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you said so much there. And one of the questions I just want to clarify, because I caught the two of the things that you said about the antidotes to self-abandonment. You said self-holding, there was a second one, and then self-devotion. What was that second one? Self-inclusivity. Oh, tell us more about that one. Self-inclusivity means a lot of things, but in general, it means... um, you know, really having an integration of all of your parts, Mm. right? And giving yourself permission to have lots of different parts of who you are. And not just, you know, psychological parts, like, you know, there's, you know, this, um, like your child parts, and your, you know, adult parts, your parent Mm -hmm. parts, your like, your manager parts, you got to take care of this, take care of that, but also your spiritual part, your body, your relational self, and what all of those parts need and what you believe and your, you know, your ethics, we are all like one solid being, but we have many different aspects. We're very dynamic, complex creatures, and we have the capacity to be all things. And I think that self-inclusivity has, you know, as invites us to be accepting of that. And there's parts of myself that I really did not like. I didn't want to have that be a part of who I am and would be really angry or have a lot of self-contempt for a lot of aspects of who I am or how I could show up in the world. And, you know, self-inclusivity is a practice in both, you know, they're all, all three are interlinked, but practice in holding space for those parts to even exist, right? Mm -hmm. And including all those parts of who I am in making decisions and in what boundaries mean and how sometimes boundaries are flexible mm-hmm. you know, or, or need to be adjusted based on, you know, all kinds of things. And so it helps to have a little bit less 
of that reactionary defensiveness with parts, you know, like, get out of here. What are you doing here? I don't like you. What's happening? Um, or like putting too much responsibility or spotlight on other parts, right? Mm. Like, I don't always want to have to be showing up a certain way because I think it's preferred or what people like better or, you know, whatever, like that's exhausting too, to kind of always be in one mode. And it's mm. a lot to ask. So that's one way of describing self-inclusivity, but it's really a, all about, you know, that acceptance of and like allowing all parts of yourself mm. to exist. And sometimes, you know, the love and the appreciation comes later, right? You don't mm. always love every part of yourself <laughs> and not every part of yourself. Like it's not always appropriate to have every part or certain parts of ourselves be out in the wild, so to say, mm. but like, you know, just allowing those parts to exist and know that they're there and, and being in right relationship, not shaming, trying to have the non-judgment and the, the grace and the compassion and the humility. Yeah. Oh, and I just love that. Thank you so much, Robin. And as, as you were speaking, I'm like, oh my gosh, it makes me think of that. All parts are welcome. And not only are they welcome, but they are integrated and embodied as a part of who I am. And um this is going to take us on a little bit of a tangent, but I'm going to go there anyway. It's like how people are always saying like, yeah, you know, crush your fear or fuck fear or like all that other stuff. And I'm like, no, like the therapist part of me is like, no, don't do that. Like there's a reason that there's parts of us that feel fear, right? Like from an evolutionary perspective, if we didn't like take fear cues, we wouldn't be alive. <laughs> our species would not have not be here right now, right? Like, or even from our own personal experiences growing up based on whatever we experienced when we were vulnerable and unable to take care of ourselves. Having a fear response is totally valid. It just made me think of that. And I had to say that as, as a part of that. But you know, when I can friend my fear and when I can let it be a part of who I am, like I can get curious and listen. And Robin, you and I have had many of these conversations as I've been on my personal evolution and my personal journey, right? Like when I wrote the book, Fierce Authenticity, that was such a process of me getting into relationship with my fears, getting into relationship with the parts of me that were like, you know, had grown up with experiencing certain types of abuse and learned like, don't allow yourself to be seen and then chose the perfect first profession of therapy where we're taught not to let ourselves be seen. Yeah. And yet the tagline for my book is show up, be seen, get love, right? And so it's like one of those things where like you were right there with me, witnessing me as I was moving through getting into relationship with those fears and recognizing too that like, actually, there's really big stuff that I'm here doing. And it's really important and powerful stuff. And how can I get into relationship with this? And it helped me so much in healing myself as I was writing the book, right? Because then there's these experiences that obviously are coming through as wanting to be shared as stories as a part of the book. And on the other hand, it was, but we're not supposed to talk about that. Right. And so it's that it, and it ties into even more of taking ownership of myself and my stories mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that this is such a process. And so I just I really felt called to say that um, because I think that for 
most of us, like in the status quo culture, we're taught like, ah, crush fear, kick fear in the face, like all that other stuff. And no, 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 we don't do that here. <laughs> we don't do that at all because that is a part of who we are and it informs us and it gives us information and reveals to us our stories and allows for us to have a deeper layer and a deeper level of healing through our stories. So so I really appreciate that part about self-inclusivity. Uh, and I want to come back to something else that you were talking about. And this was your quote. I wrote it down. Boundaries are about maintaining right relationship with myself. Oh, mm-hmm. gosh, that feels so good. And it makes me think of like every time in my life that I have either not set a boundary or not honored my own boundaries, I have ended up resentful, angry, burnt out, overwhelmed. And so I I really appreciate how this topic of boundaries really is interrelated to the ways that we take care of ourselves and actually prevent ourselves from falling in that pattern of burning ourselves out, you know, and And of course, we're human. You're right. We don't live in a vacuum. Like there are still things like, you know, there's a certain time that I know if I put myself to bed by that time, I'll wake up and have a fresher day. And there's plenty of times that I cross that boundary because it's way more fun to scroll on Instagram and do all this reading or it's way more fun to read blogs and other articles and I pay for it the next day. You know, like that's a boundary that I'm not so great at keeping for myself. So yeah, and and I know it. It's like one of those things where I know that like, oh yeah, I'm abandoning myself right now and I'm not being loving and kind to myself right now. And I think that's another important thing that you were mentioning is that self-abandonment piece. Yeah. Because in my healing work, I've definitely looked back at all of the ways that I had continued perpetuating that pattern in my own life and how it did contribute once again to anger, resentment, burnout, and overwhelm. Yeah. Something that you said reminded me of how my experience of this like big burnout phase that I had last fall and winter shifted my perspective. And I don't look at it as preventing burnout or that burnout is something that I'm bringing on myself, Mm. you know, because I believe that because of colonialism and capitalism and a lot of, you know, white supremacist culture, ideologies and practices, you know, this environment, there's more environmental causes than personal causes, like where's the accountability, right? Where does the accountability lie? And it's both, right? It's both and. And I know that in the living in the US right now, as a black biracial queer woman, you know, there's a lot of environments and relationships and work expectations and all kinds of things that are designed to perpetuate the beliefs around the value that black and brown people have to offer. And Mm -hmm. our value has been shown time and time again is in labor. That's it. Our value to a capitalist colonial white supremacist society is labor. 
that's it. Our value is not in our joy or pleasure or rest mm. um, or the brilliance or the, that we bring. It is in our labor. And our labor directly leads to profit for whoever, right? For the colonial system. So having kind of this zoom out effect, like I zoomed out, I zoomed my perspective out because it is in all of the articles I've read, all of the personal experiences I've, I've either read about in blogs or had conversations with people around burnout, everything I read was all about like, well, you need to take care of yourself better. You know, Sharani, if you would go to bed on time, rather than scrolling, then you wouldn't be so tired, then you wouldn't continue, right? Like, that's why you're burnt out. When really, there are a lot of factors that lead us to, well, I can't stop working, you know, because I have to work so much harder to make more money to be able to live and just survive, you know, be able to buy food and, you know, shelter and all of those things. And there's a lot of barriers to having our basic needs met and being able to do that. And so there are things that, you know, I realize I don't know that I'm just burnt out. I don't know if burnout is the phrase or the phenomena that I'm experiencing that, that makes sense. But capitalism fatigue, yes. <laughs> that is mm-hmm. definitely, you know, I can definitely say, yes, I have capitalism fatigue. I am fatigued mm. just thinking about continuing to live with, uphold, and perpetuate capitalist ways of being and believing about value of others, value of my time, what I bring, what others bring, why be in a certain relationship, what's the point of engaging in this work or putting an idea out there, right? Everything goes to this capitalist structure. And the more I learned about what capitalism is, and how it functions and what it requires, the more I realized that that was like the root (laughs) of the issue. Because everything, you know, I had to take better care of myself so I could work harder, Mm. right? So I had to make more money, or I had to, you know, that you just have to, right? You have to be a contributing member of society, you know, and all of the, the cultural trauma that black communities have in the U.S. and the result of that. So cultural trauma explains the trauma of a collective, not individual. So the patterns that come out of that, the, you know, the things that we pass down to our children and that have been passed down to us in order to survive, right? All, there's a lot of layers and we don't have time to get into all of that today, (laughs) but, you know, I really was realizing that it's not just burnout, right? It's burnout and the burnout isn't reflective of my inability to function properly in society. I didn't burn out because I'm not capable. I didn't burn out because I have poor self-care skills. I didn't burn out because I don't have support. Mm. None of those things, right? I was, I was engaging. There were things I was engaging in, you know, because of a result of all of that. But what I mean is like, continuing to act in capitalist white supremacist ways against myself. Right. So Mm -hmm. as you talked about in your prior episode, like how we exploit ourselves, right? Like I had that internalized oppression for sure, but it didn't come from me. It came from this society. And so knowing that helped me to see, you know what, there's a lot I can't prevent. Mm. I can't prevent Mm. the wear and tear 
that I will experience just by living here. Just like you cannot prevent your tires from wearing down when you drive them, mm. right? You just can't. The difference between me and a tire is that I can be resilient and I can kind of rejuvenate, right? And so what if I look at it less from the lens of burnout prevention and more from burnout resilience, mm. right? So knowing that I live in an environment, I live in a, in a culture, and I'm trying to create a life that's counter to that, right? But I live in this society right now, and I'm going to experience a lot more pressure and wear and tear that, you know, it's designed to burn me out. But what are the things I can do to be resilient in that? What can I prioritize, mm -hmm. right? Prioritizing things like joy, pleasure, rest, community, doing things just because, not because they're linked to any kind of productivity, achievement, or capital, social capital, financial capital, right? And those things are really hard. <laughs> They're really <laughs> hard to do. I mean, I struggle. I mean, there's so much internal conflict sometimes between, you know, the things I think I have to do and the things that I know are good for me to do. <laughs> and yeah, it's really hard to, to prioritize when, you know, every, when the like over culture or the mainstream status quo is like, no, like joy and pleasure are things that you get after you mm -hmm. work hard or after you contribute X, Y, Z amount of time, money, energy, whatever. In fact, there are many things far more important than my labor yes. and the, whatever my labor produces. There's like a million more things more important than that. So I want to get to the point where I'm in a community where that's what's prioritized mm. or is all those other things. And the way I can contribute to community looks multifaceted and is not about my labor necessarily, right? Maybe sometimes, but it has a mutual reciprocal benefit and mm. is really honored and respected, you know, and compensated appropriately, right? Not just financially, but like in other ways too. So it's been really a journey of like, you know, tying in my resilience or recovery from burnout into my overall liberation. Like, how is this connected? You know, how is my burnout connected to interacting with systems of oppression? If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast, then hop on over to coffee.com slash Sharani. That's K-O dash fi.com slash Sharani, where you can support the podcast. You'll find a link in the show notes to help direct you there. You know, Robin, I just want to say one, I love all that. And I love this idea of burnout resiliency. And I, I totally want to talk about that in a second here. I first want to go back and thank you for catching when I was talking about like this idea of bringing it upon myself. And because I'm learning, like I'm starting to navigate this process with myself with this new language, it's like, as I was saying it, it didn't feel right. And yet I didn't have the new language for like how to talk about that. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing because our language has been based in such an oppressive culture and such an oppressive system. And especially if we're black or brown people, like we are taught that we have brought it upon ourselves. Oh, yeah. 
So it didn't feel right as I was saying it. And I'm really glad that you picked up on that and like opened up this whole other exploration because it does go back to my previous episode about this is what we were taught. And I appreciate how you're talking about like, you know, for black and brown people, we were taught that our only value is the labor that we provide and the labor that we offer. And I've shared in several other episodes about the fact that, you know, I'm brown, we're from India historically, but my family was taken as indentured laborers. Once again, what were these brown people used for? Their labor in a British colony. And that's what they were used for. So I really appreciate how you are bringing it back to and reminding and like putting it outside of us. Like I didn't necessarily do this to me. It is a part of those external systems that have been internalized within me, within you, within all of us as a result of the colonial trauma that we experienced. So I really appreciate you bringing that back. And there's something else that I wanted to say. Capitalism fatigue. Oh, you said that. And my body was like, oh, my God, like I could feel something inside of me breathe when you said that, because Again, it comes back to how black and brown bodies were only useful. And actually, I'm even going to say other people of color because I live in California and we look at who built the railroads in California. It was Asian laborers who built the railroads in California. So I'm going to say black, brown and people of color. Like that's all we were good for was the labor that we could provide for what? And and it's funny because I actually defined exploitation in the episode about exploitation, the episode right before this. And it was about using usually the labor of others for someone else's gain. And what is capitalism? Like that's exactly what capitalism is, right? Where they used black, brown, and other bodies of color to build their their riches, their systems, their structures. And you said something when we first started our conversation that was really important and I wanted to go into it. And it feels like this is the time to connect it together. Because you said that at this job you were in at school, like there was a lot of the doing and doing and doing. But part of that was the systems that you were in. And I think those are the systems. Like, let's talk more about those systems, right? Because this is what it ties to is these colonial capitalist white supremacist systems. So let's go there for a moment. And then I want to hear you share more about burnout resiliency, if you're open to that. Like, because I think that is an important conversation, or even if it's capitalism fatigue resiliency, right? So let's go there. Okay. Hmm. Such big... um... (laughs) We don't talk light things here. We talk big things here. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Interacting with systems like corporate systems, academic systems, you'll experience all of the... Gosh, like, I'd hate to use this word, but I don't know another word, like weapons of (laughs) capitalist colonialism in all of those settings, you know, um, because racism or white supremacy is 
such a major structural component in corporate America and in academia. And at the time, I had no awareness around it, right? I was just like, whatever, like, you know, <laughs> I just was going to school. I right. was just learning. And you're just in the system and not knowing. Yeah. Doing these things. I'm young. You know, I'm in my early 20s, then my mid 20s, you know, and I still felt young, you know, like, you know, even in, you know, by the time I graduated when I was 29 was like, you know, I, I look back and I'm like, I was so young then. Um, <laughs> but there was a lot I wasn't aware of, you know, I didn't, yeah, I just didn't have a lot of experience in really understanding what was happening and realizing that, you know, a lot more expectation was put on me. And um, as often the only black indigenous or person of color in a company or you know, one of a few, maybe I was the only black person, but there could have been some other people of color. I didn't understand what was happening. I did not understand what was happening. I didn't know why. I didn't connect the dots, I should say, that the reason I'm being treated this way is because of my, you know, racial identity Mm. and because of white supremacist views and racist beliefs and actions. And it's not because of something I'm doing wrong. Um, And so holding those boundaries, you know, towards the end of my contract with my, that one employer, I think that's why it was so much more draining for me is because I was pushing back against something I didn't even know what it was at the time. I didn't know. I probably didn't want to believe that's what was happening. You know, I'm guessing a part of me had an idea and I didn't want to believe that because I would probably feel really powerless at the time knowing Mm -hmm. where I was in my life. But um, the same thing happens in the mental health industrial complex. Like it it is also a capitalist industry structure, Mm -hmm. systemic issues. And I would say that's where I found it the hardest because it was so incongruent with how we're supposed to believe about each other as people, how we're, right, we're taught two different things when we're going in, when we're in school or in training to be mental health professionals, to be people that walk alongside folks who are experiencing depression, anxiety, major mental health struggles, trauma, all PTSD, all kinds of things, right? We're taught all of this beautiful person-centered compassion, empathy, non-judgment, mm-hmm. you know, la, 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 la. At the same time, we're also being taught white supremacist colonial ways of thinking and believing about people, which is not at all compassionate, which is not at all non-judgmental, which is not at all, you know, so we're taught these two conflicting ways of showing up. And we really, what we're really learning is how to dehumanize, (laughs) right? We dehumanize ourselves because we're not allowed to be in the room, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're not allowed to have our stuff. That's why it's so great. It's a great place to hide. I hid there, you hid there, like, yes, I'm going to be a therapist, I can hide myself Mm -hmm. and my shit, and I get to help people through their stuff, you know, but I don't have to show up, like, I'm protected, and, you know, there's a lot of systemic issues, I found that to be even harder to deal with than the issues in, in other sectors of corporate America, like the tech industry that I was in, so I think that when it comes to the resiliency piece for me, the resiliency comes in I in in abolishing 
Mm. these structures. That's part of what care looks like for me because it's community oriented, right? You can't do it alone. You have to have really beautiful communities that, that you're Mm. doing this work with and it is creating safety. It's creating a new way of engaging. So it's hopeful for me. It's like hope in action, not the feeling of hope because I don't always feel like the emotion of hope. It's more of the like, I'm actively engaged in building something new. And abolition is more about building something new than tearing down something oppressive. It's about building something liberatory, right? We do have to tear down oppressive things too, but if we're not building up something in its place, we're going to just go right back to another oppressive system. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's systemic. And in the last episode, we talked about how it's relational, right? Liberation work is relational and it's systemic and structural, right? We have to create new systems that are liberatory and we can't do that using oppressive tools. We just can't. So that to me is part of the resilience when it comes mm-hmm. to capitalism fatigue, right? What's a different way that I can engage and how can I adjust, you know, how can I kind of dismantle the capitalist structures within myself and ways of functioning within myself, right? Change my ideologies and align myself with different types of economies. And if you would have told my biology slash artsy, you know, soulful self, even like a year ago, much less like 10 years ago, that I would be geeking out on post-capitalist economies (laughs) that are liberatory based, like I would have laughed and been like, never. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is so liberatory to me. And it, it, I feel like, okay, I can do this. I can wake up each day. I can work, right? I can provide labor knowing that I'm helping to create a new way of exchanging money and labor and time and effort for myself, even if it's in my own tiny little bubble, right? I'd like it to go bigger than that and be more in the widespread in the field or in our cities, you know, whatever. Mm. Not everyone finds getting directly involved in activism type work, like restful or (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't say restful, but like as part of the resiliency of like, Mm -hmm. yes, I feel like this is part of care to me. And that's okay. Not everybody has to be kind of on those front lines. The people who are on those front lines need people not on the front lines for support and encouragement. And everyone is contributing. Everyone in our black and brown communities and other people of color communities who are pro-liberation, right? And working towards anti-oppression, we all have a way of showing up. And it doesn't have to look a certain way, right? You don't have to be a loud shouting activist at every protest or, or whatever for you to be valuable and for you, right? It's not about your labor. It is not about mm. your labor, even especially in liberation movement. If we continue to make it about our labor and the hierarchies of labor, we are not liberating ourselves mm. and each other. We just aren't. And so it has to exist within us and in our movements um, and in our communities. And it's baby step at a time, one baby step at a time for me, for sure. Another aspect of the resiliency really is rest. And that's the hardest for me. I don't, you know, when I think of rest, like I follow the nap ministry on Instagram. (laughs) Do you follow the nap? No, I've not heard of them. You will love them. (laughs) It's an amazing account. 
And it's all about rest as resistance and, you know, active liberation and not just sleep rest, not just that, but for me, sleep rest, I really don't like sleeping. (laughs) I don't like sleeping. I don't like that. I have to sleep like, because I want to do other things, other things that are fun, that are restful, right? Like pleasurable, like I don't have to sleep. So the sleep thing for me is tough. They have to balance out, right? Like mm-hmm. what I do, my body actually needs sleep. So I have to sleep and have to sleep enough where I don't feel physically, mentally, and spiritually awful, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or drained. So that's a new practice for me is recognizing, oh, my body's tired. I need to let it rest. And this is one way that my body rests is through mm-hmm. sleep. Because before I don't think I really understood the cues I thought, you know, what I'm feeling in my body or in my mind or, you know, my relationships with something else, not as a result Mm -hmm. of not having sleep or that my body's like, whoa, can we sleep now? I had to learn those cues. Well, let me say it this way. I'm learning those cues. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know when I will be happy about needing to sleep, but um, (laughs) learning the cues, right? It's about like, holding space for that, recognizing parts of myself need rest in <laughs> form, um, and being devoted to the practice of showing up for myself. So um, I'm really centering joy and pleasure and, you know, reclaiming like the reclamation of my healing and reclamation of my joy and pleasure and, you know, my creativity, my vitality Mm. You know, really centering things that aren't labor. Yeah. You know, and it brings me to something that I think, you know, I've been struggling with, you know, I'm an artist. I call myself a soul artist. I've done art stuff, art healing work, you know, for money, you know, and I have thought for a while, you know, I have, I'm in my art studio office right now and I have no room for more canvases. Like it's the walls on and the floor are lined. And I'm like, you know, I should sell that. I should sell my art, you know, other people have said, should sell your art. Yeah. And then I'm, I feel a little bit of resistance to that because right now it's not connected to any, it doesn't feel like labor. Mm. And I don't want my relationship to art to feel like labor. I'm not at the place yet in my journey where I can bring art into the ways in which I give and receive in community where it doesn't roll into the grind, Mm. right. Or the achieving because I'm still a little bit in the default mode of achievement and high achieving and turn this into an amazing business with these things. And Oh my gosh, could be so amazing for the people, but then it's a business, (laughs) then it's labor. So I haven't learned yet how to, bring that into the fold mm. of what I have to offer in community in a way where I feel like it's, a, I think I'm protecting it from capitalism, mm. right? I think I'm protecting my art from colonialism. I think I'm protecting my art from being in the white gaze, mm. you know, of capitalism and colonialism, right? And I think that's what's happening. And it feels really important to me because my art is an expression of my spirituality. It is a way that my soul communicates with my ancestors. It's a way that I have dialogue with my divine beings and myself. 
and others, like others' spirits and our experiences. And I don't want that to be colonized. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, you said so much in there. And first of all, I just want to let our listeners know, and Robin, I want to reinforce for you, you are an incredible artist. Um, All of your work that I've seen publicly shared is just amazing. And, um, And I can also understand the part of you that's like, but that's something that's mine. Mm-hmm. And I don't want it colonized. Yeah. And I was scrolling to find um, an article as I was listening to you because I was reminded of something else you said earlier in our conversation about having to work so much harder. And I'd seen this article. It was actually shared on a mental health um, forum that I'm on. It was a HuffPost article. And it was about mental health is often a privilege for BIPOC individuals. And there's this quote that I wanted to share from it. I will link the article itself in the show notes. But And I do believe it was an Asian American um, person who wrote it. And they said, like so many other immigrants, my parents didn't have time to deal with their negative emotions when they were starting out as a young family. Self-care was not in their vocabulary. To pause could mean sinking and they needed to keep swimming. They had to push past their emotions in order to work five times harder while being five times more agreeable in order to be seen as, quote, hardworking and good enough to be taken seriously in America. And that's cultural trauma. Yes, and that is exactly what I have been connecting with myself because I am resonating with everything that you're saying about having to work harder, having to prove myself or show myself worthy, not letting myself rest. Oh, lady, I had to like really learn how to let myself rest. And now I give myself permission to rest because rest is a part of the rebellion. Like that is a part of the liberation. And The really cool part is, so my husband is actually also born in the same colony that I was born in. We have a very similar background. And he also has that like hustle and work hard mentality. Like he does not know how to sit still. It's always like, okay, and what's the next project? And what's the next project? And what's the next thing? And I'm going to, I'm going to take credit for this one through my example of like letting myself rest weekends are for me. And one day during the week, I also take time to rest. And my mornings are for me and for rest. And he started to see that now. And there will be weekends now where he's like, no, I just want to rest. And I'm like, yes, it's rubbing off. Um, Same thing with my parents. They are finally starting to connect with this permission to rest, you know, and they're like, finally almost to retirement age. And now they're finally starting to connect with that rest piece. So yeah, it's one of those things. And for me, joy and pleasure are also super challenging. Like they are a work in progress. Rest I'm feeling pretty good about right now. Anyway, talk to me in a couple months. It might be different. But in this moment, I'm actually feeling like I've been able to work on that relationship with rest and to be able to give myself that. And I'm reminded of something else you said earlier about boundaries being a devotion to myself. And that was a beautiful 
statement that you made also. And, and to me, that's what rest feels like to me is like when I allow myself, when I give myself permission to rest, I'm really being in devotion to myself, to my body, to my person, the temple that is me and my body. And pleasure and joy, they're still a little bit harder, you know, because as a result of colonization, one, we're taught not to have high hopes because of all the false promises the colonizers made about, oh, new lands and new opportunities. But no, nope, we're just gonna, for my history anyway, which I know is different than black bodied history, but for my brown bodied history is the indentured servitude of like, oh, come with us to this new land and, and we'll pay you and you'll eventually be free. And you'll have this great life. Like, no, you're not going to have this great life. You're going to have a life of poverty, alcoholism, addiction, abuse, violence. That's so all those false promises. So we don't let ourselves have hope. Like, we don't let ourselves experience joy because it could be taken away from us, right? Like, a part of that is that what you just said, that cultural trauma or the colonial trauma. And so it is still a work in progress for me. And then pleasure. I mean, I think that just goes hand in hand with joy. Yeah. And it's not over, right? The colonizers aren't gone, you know, and colonization still happens every single day. And yes, capitalism, colonialism, white supremacy harm white people. They do. And the purpose wasn't to harm white people, though, you know, Mm -hmm. and the harm done to BIPOC communities is much greater. And I think that when it comes to recognizing the historical intergenerational cultural trauma and the cultural trauma that we're experiencing right now and its cumulative effects and how there's a lot more light being shown on the physical and the emotional and the mental and the relational impacts of all of that, right? Like we know a lot, we have more language around things now. Let me say this. I don't think we have more language. I think the language was always there. You know, I think black, brown, and other people of color communities were saying, communicating, this is the harm, this is the harm, this is Mm -hmm. the harm. And now there's a tiny bit more safe. I really hesitate to say the word safety. I don't know. I think there's more bravery that BIPOC communities are feeling because we're more, we're seeing and learning from each other that we're, Mm. we're all over here. Like, no, 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 no. We're pushing back. We're resisting. And there are a few more white accomplices, true allies, you know, who are pushing, joining us. Right. And who are super willing to get in the game mess up, try again, all of those things and take the lead from BIPOC communities and leaders that are saying like, this is what needs to change. So there's a little bit more of that, or maybe it's just happening in a different way, you know, that our generation is able to understand differently, or, you know, the work is continuing, right? People have been advocating, speaking up to the harm and speaking up to the wellness that we need as people of color. And we're building on that, right? our generation and our children's generation, we're going to be building on that, right? So I think we're getting that accumulative effect and also systems and people are pushing back, right? Look at our current administration. There's lots of systems pushing back. In Colorado, there's more regulations being proposed for mental health professionals, which will absolutely create more gatekeeping that will prevent marginalized community, marginalized, you know, therapists with marginalized identities from gaining access to certain things. And it's like, 
there's a lot of pushback, right? But I think that we are kind of in that place where we as BIPOC communities are feeling more brave. Mm-hmm. You know, at least the communities that the people I'm in touch with are feeling a little bit more brave. And not because we feel more safe in white supremacist culture, but it's because we feel more safe in our communities because we have a community. We're creating liberatory community and liberatory culture, right? What does it mean for us in our little group? What does liberation culture mean for us, Mm. right? And if we continue to build that, that's where I feel, like I said last time, that's where that sense of belonging is, Mm -hmm. right? And that is exactly what colonization tore apart was the power of our communities, (laughs) Um, you know, divide and conquer. I'm chuckling because we've got an episode on that too. Disconnection. I think it's um, episode 11.0 is speaking to exactly that. So that's why I'm chuckling. Yeah. Yeah. And Robin, what you said about bravery that black, brown, and other people of color are feeling and connecting more with the bravery And that is definitely true for me and true for my story. Do I feel safer? I'm glad that you kind of checked in with yourself there because I'm not sure that I feel safer because that's something that I had to connect with my, again, bringing it back to fear, right? Connecting with that part about. And then also knowing that if I didn't start to tap into the courage and connect with the bravery to even launch this podcast where we're having such deep and powerful conversations about our culture and the traumas and liberation and what that looks like. And especially for those of us who are BIPOC individuals, I never would have thought that this is what I would be here helping to bring through with my work. And on the other hand, as I've allowed myself to connect with the courage and tap into that bravery, I have never felt more aligned in my life that this is a part of why my soul agreed to come here at this revolutionary time on this planet is to help support, you know, to do my part in helping to support this process. And then bringing it back to the importance of community. I think that's something that we will continue to emphasize over and over again. And for our listeners, as a reminder, in mid-September, I am facilitating a free gathering for us to come together in community. And so for information on that, check the show notes. And that is what is so important is for us to come together. Because exactly what you said, divide and conquer Mm -hmm. the disconnection. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. We could talk about that for years. We could. May I share a quote with you? Yes, absolutely. I heard this in a podcast episode. The podcast is called Shaping the Shift. It's by Thea Monier, who is mm. an amazing artist and therapist and just a, she's so multifaceted. She interviewed Akila S. Richards, who is all about raising free people, anti-oppressive parenting, de-schooling, things like that. All kinds of beautiful liberatory stuff. They're both Black women. In this episode, they were talking about bravery. And let me preface, Thea Monier is all about pleasure, pleasure Mm. as healing pleasure. So she and I really, I really connected with her because 
when I connected with her, I was really leaning into the joy as healing. Like, whoa, joy is healing and joy is not happiness, right? So I was really understanding what joy is for me and um, what it means for me and, and kind of what is the definition of joy. And so joy is not at all what, you know, I had grown up thinking it is. So <clears throat> this is Akila's definition of bravery. Bravery is consistent steps in the direction of joy, despite clear evidence of fear or possible failure. Fear is sometimes being unsure, unclear, or even unsafe, yet still intentionally doing the harder thing to do. I hear people talking about how you got to be safe before you can be brave. My black skin, my black body didn't have that experience. Mm. So Akila. And Thea, had, there's a lot of context around that quote. So I encourage anyone listening to listen to that episode of Shaping the Shift podcast. If you share that with me, I will get it linked in the show notes for our listeners. Yeah, because the bravery we're talking about, you know, I think that you and I are experiencing and feeling the bravery is about moving toward liberation, mm-hmm. right? And you need joy for that because joy is directly linked to purpose and, and pleasure, right. And acceptance of self and really, you know, having that deep cultivation of that, which brings you joy, right. You've got to be connected to your sense of purpose and what brings you that purpose and fulfillment, right. It's much deeper than external happiness, right. Happiness is brought externally joy is cultivated internally. Mm. So if you think of joy from the context as joy is healing, like joy is the medicine and joy is liberation, liberation is joy, right? And pleasure and rest. Yes. All of those things. Then you can understand bravery in that context. Like, yes, I'm going to be brave. We are going to boldly move toward liberation. Absolutely knowing that we could be facing harm right? We have to get to that liberation. We have to get to the joy. Joy Mm -hmm. is liberation. When labor equals pain, equals stress, equals dehumanization, equals harm, you know, all of those things, of course, joy is liberation, Mm -hmm. right? Just like your family and your ancestors experienced that. If I stop, then I'm going to, you know, something bad is going to happen. Enslaved Africans, if they stopped, they got whipped, Mm -hmm. right? Or worse. And so joy is liberation. And bravery means we are walking towards that liberation, knowing that we aren't safe walking there. The journey is not safe. Bravery Mm -hmm. is not about safety. We don't feel brave because we're safer. We're brave because what bands us together as a community of BIPOC people who have a varied definition of joy and pleasure and rest, right? But as a collective on a high level, we're all getting to that liberation. And we will go through the unsafe places to get there. We would love it to have some protection along the way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we would love for it to be safer. But we know that that's not how this is set up. And as humans, like I said before, we buck against change and white supremacist culture and capitalism and people that really you don't want to let that go, you know, because they fear that they're going to lose connection and belonging too, right? Like, that's mainly who I was talking to before, was like, true belonging 
doesn't exist in oppression. So if you want to continue upholding oppressive beliefs, ideologies, structures, and systems, then you're not going to have that belonging. So I think it's important to know that in our journey, we don't need white people to give us liberation. We would love, you know, I'm speaking for myself right now. I would love for some white folks to protect us as we create our, you know, create little kind of beyond the edges of our movements and protecting us as we do that, right? If you're thinking of people walking along a path, like having the white people be on the sides, right? To protect us from things coming at us as we cultivate our liberation. And that means pushing back, right? White folks pushing back on systems of oppression, knocking them down, saying we can't do this anymore. These people are coming through for their liberation. Stop throwing your oppressive Mm -hmm. bullshit at them. You know, that's a big ask. And that's what it's going to take because if our society is truly going to move in the direction of anti-racism, it's got to look at all the, the structures upholding it. So anyway, that was a little soapbox moment. <laughs> and it was so powerful. And I think the perfect place for us to wrap up. And Robin, I don't know how this happens. Every time you and I get into a conversation, it's like a time warp. And for those listening, I just want to say it's 444 right now. Like the time when we paused right there was just 444. Um And I'm into like numbers and stuff like that as messages and communications for us. And what you just shared with us, Robin, was incredibly beautiful. And like I said, the perfect place for us to, I think, wrap up for today's episode, because the last statements that you made are just so incredibly powerful as we are working through our capitalism fatigue and building the resiliency around it. And as we are being brave and showing up on our path towards our liberation, and I may be butchering what you said here, but what I caught was just so powerful. And I want to read it back so our listeners have it to percolate on that bravery is walking towards liberation, knowing that we are not safe along the way. And the way that our white bodied allies can help us is by surrounding us and protecting us as we are doing that walk and not protecting us in a white savior kind of way. But like the image that I have is the images that we saw in the protests after the murder of George Floyd, where there were white bodied individuals stepping in to protect people of color from the riot police. You know, like that's what we're talking about when we're talking about helping to support us. And the visual I got literally was like, here we are like walking in the path. And then there's like those people almost like at at a marathon, right? Like all those people that are on the side of the road that are like watching and cheering us on. Um, And not just cheering us on, but like doing their part to help ensure that on the road, we're able to arrive to our own personal and collective liberation. And so Robin, with that, I'm going to say, is there any final thought that you want to share? Because that just feels so powerful. And that image right there, like, ooh, you gave me goosebumps as you were sharing. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think I have a final thought. I think it's, yeah, it's a good place to rest. Yeah. So. 
Thank you again so much, Robin, for joining us. Thank you to our listeners who have joined us for take two, as we've actually in some ways debunked the myth of burnout, um, that really we might argue that it is capitalism fatigue and a part of all of those systems and structures that have been forced upon us and imposed upon us that we have in some ways also internalized. So thank you again so much. And Robin, I think we can have these conversations like on a regular basis. Yes, I feel like we're going to have an offline conversation about you potentially being a regular guest on the on the podcast. And in the meantime, everyone take really good care. And remember, mid-September 2020, I am facilitating a gathering for us to come together and be in community together. So look for the link in the show notes. And until next time, be well. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast, then please be sure to subscribe and rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, be sure to share this podcast with everybody that you know, so that they too can get in on these powerful conversations that we're having as we're all on our path towards liberation. If you're a change maker and a revolutionary and you're looking for more support as we're in this time of change, then keep listening because I have something super special for you. I've recorded a short audio download that will support you as we are in these revolutionary times. Head on over to the link in the show notes to access your download today. I look forward to being with you again next time. Until then, be well and take really good care. Bye.